Section 11 of The Morals, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Morals, Volume 1, by Plutarch. Translated by several hands, corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. Concerning Music. Now that there is something of majesty, something great and divine in music, Aristotle, who is Plato's scholar, thus labors to convince the world. Harmony, saith he, descended from heaven, and is of a divine, noble, and angelic nature. But being fourfold as to its efficacy, it has two meanings, the one arithmetical, the other enharmonical. As for its members, its dimensions, and its excesses of intervals, they are best discovered by number and equality of measure, the whole art being contained in two tetrachords. These are his words. The body of it, he saith, consists of discording parts, yet concording one with another, whose means nevertheless agree according to arithmetical proportion. For the upper string being fitted to the lowest in the ratio of two to one produces a perfect diapason. Thus, as we said before, nete consisting of twelve units, and hypate of six, the paramese accords with the hypate according to the sesquialter proportion, and has nine units, whilst meze has eight units. So that the chiefest intervals through the whole scale are the diatessaron, which is the proportion of four to three, the diapente, which is the proportion of three to two, and the diapason, which is the proportion of two to one while the proportion of nine to eight appears in the interval of a tone. With the same inequalities of excess or diminution, all the extremes are differenced one from another, and the means from the means, either according to the quantity of the numbers or the measure of geometry, which Aristotle thus explains, observing that nete exceeds meze by a third part of itself, and hypate is exceeded by paramese in the same proportion, so that the excesses stand in proportion for by the same parts of themselves they exceed and are exceeded, that is, the extremes, nete and hypate, exceed and are exceeded by meze and paramese in the same proportions, those of four to three and of three to two. Now these excesses are in what is called harmonic progression. But the distances of nete from meze and of paramese from hypate, expressed in numbers, are in the same proportion, twelve to eight equals nine to six for paramese exceeds meze by one-eighth of the latter. Again, nete is to hypate as two to one, paramese to hypate as three to two, and meze to hypate as four to three. This, according to Aristotle, is the natural constitution of harmony as regards its parts and its numbers. But according to natural philosophy, both harmony and its parts consist of even, odd, and also even-odd. Altogether it is even, as consisting of four terms, but its parts and proportions are even, odd, and even, odd. So, nete is even, as consisting of twelve units, paramese is odd, of nine, meze even, of eight, and hypate even, odd, of six, i.e., two times three. Whence it comes to pass that music, herself and her parts, being thus constituted as to excesses and proportion, the whole accords with the whole, and also with each one of the parts. But now, as for the senses that are created within the body, such as are of celestial and heavenly extraction, and which by divine assistance affect the understanding of men by means of harmony, namely sight and hearing, 
do by the very light and voice express harmony and others which are their attendants so far as they are senses likewise exist by harmony for they perform none of their effects without harmony and although they are inferior to the other two they are not independent of them nay those two also since they enter into human bodies at the very same time with god himself claim by reason a vigorous and incomparable nature manifest from hence therefore it is why the ancient greeks with more reason than others were so careful to teach their children music for they deemed it requisite by the assistance of music to form and compose the minds of youth to what was decent sober and virtuous believing the use of music beneficially efficacious to incite to all serious actions especially to the adventuring upon warlike dangers to which purpose they made use of pipes or flutes when they advanced in battle array against their enemies like the lacedaemonians who upon the same occasion caused the castorian melody to be played before their battalions others inflamed their courage with harps playing the same sort of harmony when they went to look danger in the face as the cretans did for a long time others even to our own times continue to use the trumpet the argives made use of flutes at their wrestling matches called stanea which sort of sport was first instituted in honor of danaus but afterwards consecrated to jupiter stanaeus or jupiter the mighty and now at this day it is the custom to make use of flutes at the games called pentathla although there is now nothing exquisite or antique nothing like what was customary among men of old time like the song composed by hierax for this very game still even though it is sorry stuff and nothing exquisite it is accompanied by flute music but among the more ancient greeks music in theatres was never known for they employed their whole musical skill in the worship of the gods and the education of youth at which time there being no theatres erected music was yet confined within the walls of their temples as being that with which they worshipped the supreme deity and sang the praises of virtuous men and it is probable that the word theatron at a later period and theorein to behold much earlier were derived from theos god but in our age is such another face of new inventions that there is not the least remembrance or care of that use of music which related to education for all our musicians make it their business to court the theatre muses and study nothing but compositions for the stage but some will say did the ancients invent nothing themselves yes say i they did invent but their inventions were grave and decent for they who have written the history of music attribute to terpander the addition of the dorian nete which before was not in use even the whole mixolydian mood is a new invention such were also the orthian manner of melody with orthian rhythms and also the trochaeus semantus and if we believe pindar terpander was the inventor of the scolian or rondelet archilochus also invented the rhythmic composition of the iambic trimeter the change to rhythms of different character the melodramatic delivery and the accompaniment proper to each of these he is also presumed to be the author of the epodes tetrameters the cretic and the prosodiac rhythms and the augmentation of the heroic verse some make him author also of the elegiac measure as likewise of the extending the iambic to the paean epibatis the prolonged and heroic to the prosodiac and cretic and archilochus is first said to have taught how iambics could be partly recited to the stroke of the lyre and partly sung from him the tragedians learned it and from them crexus took it and made use of it in his dithyrambics it is thought that he invented also playing on the lyre at intervals in the song 
whereas the ancients played only during the singing. Of the Hypolydian mood they make Polymnestus the inventor, and the first that taught the lowering and raising of the voice. Oiluses and Oibole To the same Olympus, to whom they also ascribe the first invention of Grecian and well-regulated gnomic music, they attribute likewise the finding out, the enharmonic music, the prosodiac measure to which is composed the hymn to Mars, and the Korean measure which he used in the hymns to the mother of the gods. Some report him to be the author also of the Bacchius, and every one of the ancient songs show that this is so. But Lazus of Hermione, transferring the rhythms to suit the dithyrambic time, and making use of an instrument with many notes, made an absolute innovation upon the ancient music by the use of more notes and those more widely distributed. Aristophanes, the comic poet, making mention of Philoxenus, complains of his introducing lyric verses among the cyclic choruses, where he brings in music thus speaking, He filled me with discordant measures airy, wicked hyperbole and niglary, and to uphold the follies of his play, like a lank radish, bowed me every way. Other comedians have since set forth the absurdity of those who have been slicers and manglers of music. Now, that the right moulding or ruin of ingenuous manners and civil conduct lies in a well-grounded musical education, Aristoxenus has made apparent. For, of those that were contemporary with him, he gives an account of Talasius the Theban, who in his youth was bred up in the noblest excellences of music, and, moreover, studied the works of the most famous lyrics, Pindar, Dionysius the Theban, Lampris, Pratinus, and all the rest who were accounted most eminent, who played also to perfection upon the lute, and was not a little industrious to furnish himself with all those other accomplishments of learning. But being past the prime of his age, he was so bewitched with the theatre's new fangles, and the innovations of multiplied notes, that despising these noble precepts and that solid practice to which he had been educated, he betook himself to Philoxenus and Timotheus, and among those delighted chiefly in such as were most depraved with diversity of notes and baneful innovation. And yet when he made it his business to make verses and labour both ways, as well in that of Pindar as that of Philoxenus, he could have no success in the latter. And the reason proceeded from the truth and exactness of his first education. Therefore, if it be the aim of any person to practise music with skill and judgment, let him imitate the ancient manner. Let him also adorn it with those other sciences, and make philosophy his tutor, which is sufficient to judge what is in music decent and useful. For music being generally divided into three parts, diatonic, chromatic, and enharmonic, it behooves one who comes to learn music to understand poetry, which uses these three parts, and to know how to express his poetical inventions in proper musical form. First, therefore, we are to consider that all musical learning is a sort of habituation, which does not teach the reason of her precepts at one and the same time to the learner. Moreover, we are to understand that to such an education there is not requisite an enumeration of its several divisions, but every one learns by chance what either the master or scholar, according to the authority of the one and the liberty of the other, has most affection for. But the more prudent sort reject this chance medley way of learning as the Lacedaemonians of old, the Mantinians, and the Pelenians, who, making choice either of one single method, or else but very few styles, used only that sort of music which they deemed most proper to regulate the inclinations of youths. This will be apparent if any one shall examine every one of the parts, and see what is the subject of their several contemplations. 
for harmony takes cognizance of intervals, systems, classes of harmonious sounds, notes, tones, and systematical transmutations. Farther than this it goes not, and therefore it would be in vain to inquire of harmony whether the poet have rightly, and so to speak musically chosen, the Dorian for the beginning, the mixed Lydian and Dorian for the end, or the hypophrygian and Phrygian for the middle. For the industry of harmony reaches not to these, and it is defective in many other things, as not understanding the force and extent of elegant aptness and proper concinity. Neither did ever the chromatic or enharmonic species arrive to such force of aptitude as to discover the nature and genius of the poem, for that is the work of the poet. It is as plain that the sound of the system is different from the sound of the descant sung in the same system, which, however, does not belong to the consideration of harmonical studies. There is the same to be said concerning rhythms, for no rhythm can claim to itself the force of perfect aptitude. For we call a thing apt and proper when we consider the nature of it. The reason of this, we say, is either a certain plain or mixed composure, or both. Like the enharmonic species of Olympus, by him set in the Phrygian mood and mixed with the paean epibatus, which rendered the beginning of the key naturally elegant, in what is called the nome of Minerva. For having made choice of his key and measure, he only changed the paean epibatus for the trochee, which produced his enharmonic species. However, the enharmonic species and Phrygian tone remaining together with the whole system, the elegancy of the character was greatly altered. For that which was called harmony in the nome of Minerva was quite another thing from that in the introduction. He, then, that has both judgment as well as skill, is to be accounted the most accurate musician. For he that understands the Dorian mood, not being able withal to discern by his judgment what is proper to it and when it is fit to be made use of, shall never know what he does. Nay, he shall quite mistake the nature and custom of the key. Indeed, it is much questioned among the Dorians themselves whether the enharmonic composers be competent judges of the Dorian songs. The same is to be said concerning the knowledge of rhythm. For he that understands a peon may not understand the proper use of it though he know the measure of which it consists. Because it is much doubted among those that make use of peons whether the bare knowledge make a man capable to determine concerning the proper use of those rhythms, or, as others say, whether it aspire to presume so far. Therefore it behooves that person to have two sorts of knowledge who will undertake to judge of what is proper and what improper. First, of the custom and manner of elegancy for which such a composition was intended, and next, of those things of which the composition consists. And thus, that neither the bare knowledge of harmony, nor of rhythm, nor of any other things that singly by themselves are but a part of the whole body of music, is sufficient to judge and determine either of the one or the other, what has been already said may suffice to prove. Now then, there being three species into which all harmony is divided, equal in the magnitude of systems or intervals and force of notes and tetrachords, we find that the ancients never disputed about any more than one, for they never troubled themselves with the chromatic or diatonic, but differed only about the enharmonic, and there no farther than about the great interval called the diapason. The further subdivision, indeed, caused some little variance, but they nearly all agreed that harmony itself is but one. Therefore he must never think to be a true artist in the understanding and practice of music, who advances no farther than the single knowledge of this or that particular. But it behooves him to trace through all the particular members of it, and so to be master of the whole body by understanding how to mix and join all the divided members. 
for he that understands only harmony is confined to a single manner. Wherefore, in short, it is requisite that the sense and understanding concur in judging the parts of music, and that they should neither be too hasty, like those senses which are rash and forward, nor too slow, like those which are dull and heavy. Though it may happen sometimes, through the inequality of nature, that the same senses may be too slow and too quick at the same time which things are to be avoided by a sense and judgment that would run an equal course for there are three things at least that at the same instant strike the ear the note the time and the word or syllable by the note we judge of the harmony by the time of the rhythm and by the word of the matter or subject of the song as these proceed forth altogether it is requisite the sense should give them entrance at the same moment but this is certain where the sense is not able to separate every one of these and consider the effects of each apart, there it can never apprehend what is well or what is amiss in any. First, therefore, let us discourse concerning coherence, for it is necessary that coherence accompany the discerning faculty. For judgment of good or bad is not to be made from notes disjoined, broken time, and shattered words, but from coherence. For there is in practice a certain commixture of parts which commonly are not compounded, we are next to consider whether the masters of music are sufficiently capable of being judges of it. Now I aver the negative, for it is impossible to be a perfect musician and a good judge of music by the knowledge of those things that seem to be but parts of the whole body, as by excellency of hand upon the instrument, or singing readily at first sight, or exquisiteness of the ear, so far as this extends to the understanding of harmony and time. Neither does the knowledge of time and harmony, pulsation or elocution, or whatever else falls under the same consideration, perfect their judgment. Now, for the reasons why a musician cannot gain a perfect judgment from any of these, we must endeavor to make them clear. First, then, it must be granted that of things about which judgment is to be made, some are perfect and others imperfect. Those things which are perfect are the compositions in general, whether sung or played, and the expression of those, whether upon the instruments or by the voice, with the rest of the same nature. The imperfect are the things to these appertaining, and for whose sake they are made use of. Such are the parts of expression. A second reason may be found in poetry with which the case is the same. For a man that hears a consort of voices or instruments can judge whether they sing or play in tune, and whether the language be plain or not. But every one of these are only parts of instrumental and vocal expression, not the end itself, but for the sake of the end. For by these and things of the same nature shall the elegancy of elocution be judged, whether it be proper to the poem which the performer undertakes to sing. The same is to be said of the several passions expressed in the poetry. The ancients now made principal account of the moral impression, and therefore preferred that fashion of the antique music which was grave and least affected. Therefore, the Argives are said to have punished deviation from the ancient music, and to have imposed a fine upon such as first adventured to play with more than seven strings, and to introduce the Mixolydian mood. Pythagoras, that grave philosopher, rejected the judging of music by the senses, affirming that the virtue of music could be appreciated only by the intellect. And therefore he did not judge of music by the ear, but by the harmonical proportion and thought it sufficient to fix the knowledge of music within the compass of the diapason. But our musicians nowadays have so utterly exploded the most noble of all the moods, which the ancients greatly admired for its majesty, that hardly any among them make the least account of enharmonic distances. 
and so negligent and lazy are they grown as to believe the enharmonic diasis to be too contemptible to fall under the apprehension of sense, and they therefore exterminate it out of their compositions, deeming those to be triflers that have any esteem for it, or make use of the mood itself. For proof of which they think they bring a most powerful argument, which rather appears to be the dullness of their own senses, as if whatever fled their apprehensions were to be rejected as useless and of no value. And then again they urge that its magnitude cannot be perceived through its concord, like that of the semitone, tone, and other distances, not understanding that at the same time they throw out the third, fifth, and seventh, of which the one consists of three, the other of five, and the last of seven diases. And on the same principle all the intervals that are odd should be rejected as useless, inasmuch as none of them is perceptible through concord and this would include all which by means of even the smallest diasis are measured by odd numbers. Whence it necessarily follows that no division of the tetrachord would be of use but that which is to be measured by all even intervals, as in the syntonic diatonic and in the tonian chromatic. But these opinions are not only contrary to appearance but repugnant one to another, for they themselves chiefly make use of those divisions of tetrachords in which most of the intervals are either unequal or irrational to which purpose they always soften both Lycanus and Parinete, and lower even some of the standing sounds by an irrational interval, bringing the Trite and Parinete to approach them. And especially they applaud the use of those systems in which most of the intervals are irrational, by relaxing not only those tones which are by nature movable, but also some which are properly fixed, as it is plain to those that rightly understand these things. Now, for the advantages that accrue to men from the use of music, the famous Homer has taught us, introducing Achilles, in the height of his fury toward Agamemnon, appeased by the music which he learned from Chiron, a person of great wisdom. For thus says he, Amused at ease the godlike man they found, pleased with the solemn harps of harmonious sound, the well-wrought harp from conquered Thebe came, of polished silver was its costly frame. With this he soothes his angry soul, and sings the immortal deeds of heroes and of kings. Learn, says Homer, from hence the true use of music. For it became Achilles, the son of Peleus the Just, to sing the famous acts and achievements of great and valiant men. Also, in teaching the most proper time to make use of it, he found out a profitable and pleasing pastime for one's leisure hours. For Achilles, being both valiant and active, by reason of the disgust he had taken against Agamemnon, withdrew from the war. Homer, therefore, thought he could not do better than by the laudable incitements of music and poetry to inflame the hero's courage for those achievements which he afterwards performed. And this he did, calling to mind the great actions of former ages. Such was then the ancient music, and such the advantages that made it profitable. To which end and purpose we read that Hercules, Achilles, and many others made use of it, whose master, wisest Chiron, is recorded to have taught not only music, but morality and physic. In brief, therefore, a rational person will not blame the sciences themselves, if any one make use of them amiss, but will adjudge such a failing to be the error of those that abuse them, so that whoever he be that shall give his mind to the study of music in his youth, if he meet with a musical education, proper for the forming and regulating his inclinations, he will be sure to applaud and embrace that which is noble and generous, and to rebuke and blame the contrary, as well in other things as in what belongs to music. 
and by that means he will become clear from all reproachful actions, for now, having reaped the noblest fruit of music, he may be of great use, not only to himself, but to the commonwealth. While music teaches him to abstain from everything indecent, both in word and deed, and to observe decorum, temperance, and regularity. Now, that those cities which were governed by the best laws took care always of a generous education in music, many testimonies may be produced. But for us it shall suffice to have instanced Terpander, who appeased a sedition among the Lacedaemonians, and Thaletus the Cretan, of whom Pratinus writes, that being sent for by the Lacedaemonians by advice of the oracle, he freed the city from a raging pestilence. Homer tells that the Grecians stopped the fury of another noisome pestilence by the power and charms of the same noble science. With sacred hymns and songs that sweetly please, the Grecian youth all day the gods appease. Their lofty paeans bright Apollo hears, and still the charming sounds delight his ears. These verses, most excellent master, I thought requisite to add as the finishing stone to my musical discourse, which were by you cited before, to show the force of harmony. For indeed the chiefest and sublimest end of music is the graceful return of our thanks to the gods, and the next is to purify and bring our minds to a sober and harmonious temper. Thus, said Sotericus, most excellent master, I have given you what may be called an encyclic discourse of music. Nor was Sotericus a little admired for what he had spoken, as one that both by his countenance and speech had shown his zeal and affection for that noble science. After all, said Onesicratus, I must needs applaud this in both of you, that you have kept within your own spheres and observed your proper limits. For Lysias, not insisting any further, undertook only to show us what was necessary to the making a good hand, as being an excellent performer himself. But Sotericus has feasted us with a discovery of the benefit, the theory, the force, and right end of music. But one thing I think they have willingly left for me to say, for I cannot think them guilty of so much bashfulness that they should be ashamed to bring music into banquets, where certainly, if anywhere, it cannot but be very useful, which Homer also confirms to be true song and the merry dance the joy of feasts not that i would have any one believe from these words that homer thought music useful only for pleasure and delight there being a profounder meaning concealed in the verse for he brought in music to be present at the banquets and revels of the ancients as believing it then to be of greatest use and advantage to repel and mitigate the inflaming power of the wine to which our aristoxenus agrees who alleges that music was introduced at banquets for this reason that as wine intemperately drunk wakens both the body and mind so music by its harmonious order and symmetry assuages and reduces them to their former constitution and therefore it was that homer reports that the ancients made use of music at their solemn festivals but for all this my most honoured friends methinks you have forgot the chiefest thing of all and that which renders music most majestic for pythagoras Archytas, Plato and many others of the ancient philosophers were of the opinion that there could be no motion of the world, or rolling of the spheres, without the assistance of music, since the supreme deity created all things harmoniously. But it would be unseasonable now to enter upon such a discourse, especially at this time, when it would be absurd for music to transgress her highest and most musical office, which is to give the laws and limits of time and measure to all things. Therefore, after he had sung a paean, and offered to Saturn and his offspring, with all the other gods and the muses, he dismissed the company.
End of section 11.